0: Hello, my name is Sebastian Castro-Nicolescu, and I will be having a conversation with Jarrett Key for the New York City Trans Oral History Project, in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is July 25th, 2018, and this is being recorded at the New York Public Library offices in Midtown Manhattan. Hi, Jarrett. Hi, thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for coming out. How are you doing today? I'm good. Sort of busy, but
1: I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? Pretty good. Sweaty.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good. Um, Yeah, so I guess to start, we can just talk about when you were born, where you're from.
1: Totally. So my name is Jarrett Key. Jarrett Lavelle Key. I was born on December twenty first, nineteen ninety, in actually Columbus, Georgia, at the Columbus Medical Center. I think is what it's called. But I grew up in Seal, Alabama, so it's like thirty minutes away, um, from Columbus. So rural Alabama. I grew up. I have a twin brother. His name is John Key. He also identifies as queer. Um, and so growing up with the twin in Alabama as my he was my only sibling, um was really fun and amazing. Very rural, though. So okay. cows and chickens and <laughs> horses and green pastures and lots of time like spent just running around and my mom locking us out of the house and being like, come back when the sun goes down. You know, <laughs> definitely that childhood. Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. And so do you have any earliest memories?
1: My earliest memory? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I think... So, I remember sliding, we had a like a, a swing set, like a play set mm. outside um, in our backyard. Mm-hmm. And I remember like sliding down that one, like on my stomach <laughs> and like John being like right behind me.
0: Mm.
1: I remember that. I remember like running through the pastures, like trying to like overstep the cow patties mm-hmm. <laughs> and running to my grandmother and grandfather's house who lived across the pasture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess that, I've never that about my earliest memories before, but anyway. Okay. That sounds like a beautiful memory. Yeah. <laughs> definitely peaceful. Mm. Definitely peaceful. Alabama, I love Alabama and granted, mm. I don't live there anymore mm. and I, I'm not really, I don't have any plans on living there full time. Yeah. Anytime soon <laughs> for lots of reasons. Mm. Um, but I loved growing up there mm. and I can't imagine not having grown up there now that i've been in new york for about six years that green space and like the southern culture even means more to me than i thought that it did um yeah i never imagined that i was actually going to be in new york city my brother john in the fourth grade like somehow decided that he was going to move to new york city (laughs) and i don't know what he expected to be doing in the city but he knew he was going to be here Um, even though we had never been to New York before. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until, for me, I graduated Brown University in 2013, like, spent some time working in Providence over the summer, Mm -hmm. thought I had a job and everything lined up. Mm -hmm. All of the things fall through as it does. Mm -hmm. Um, Was in Italy visiting a boyfriend at the time. Um, It was, like, my first adult, Mm -hmm. like vacation that I like paid for and planned and like was going to spend two weeks there and like was going to Italy with like $500 in my pocket (laughs) you know like totally like 21 year old like just trying to figure out stuff and then while I was there I realized that nothing was working out so I came back (laughs) to Providence with a week left in my in my lease there Came to New York City for an interview and to look at an apartment on a Wednesday. Got my apartment, got a job. Wow. And then went back to Providence that same day and then moved up to New York that weekend. So basically from the time that I found out I was moving in New York to like getting here, it was like three days. Oh my God. Which was really intense, but it actually was perfect because I didn't have a place to stay in Providence either. So (laughs) So I guess it all worked out. And so I've been here ever since. Wow. And so...
0: Going all the way back maybe to like fourth grade and John's kind of like idea that um, he was going Mm -hmm. to move to New York. Um, Where do you think that came from or what was your kind of perception of?
1: I think that early on, John and I realized that we loved Alabama and thought it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think that we also knew that it was a small town. And we also knew that our ambition and our goals and our hopes and dreams Mm. didn't have to happen Mm. in that small town. Yeah. And our parents, who are not well-traveled, really, at all, um, sort of just was like, do what y'all need to do, (laughs) you know, very supportive in that sense. Like, going to school, though, they totally wanted us to go to school like a thousand mile, like within a thousand mile radius Mm -hmm. of Alabama. Mm -hmm. I don't actually think we did that. I think that <laughs> Providence actually is a little bit right outside of that. Okay. Um, but it didn't matter. They're <laughs> we like, but this is where we have to go to school. So John went to RISD and I went to Brown, but yeah. we didn't imagine going to school in the same city. Huh. It sort of just worked out that way. John always knew he wanted to go to RISD, And I really didn't even know where Brown was until like my college counselor was like, you should apply to Brown. And I was like, okay, I'll apply. And then I got in and then I like visited for the like pre-orientation or whatever it's called. Loved it. (laughs) Met some people there that, met some people at the pre-college program that actually became my friends, which I feel like never happens. Yeah. and so, yeah, it really was beautiful, and I'm so happy that it all worked out. And having my brother yeah. in the city, particularly during that that specific transition, was important. Mm. And now we both live in New York. <laughs> John moved here before I did. Okay. He currently lives with his husband, Wild Morcos. Mm. They started a graphic design studio called Morcos Key. Wow. Um, that's Brooklyn-based. They do arts and cultural institutions. They've been together for, like, six years or some change, <laughs> which is, like, amazing, crazy, wow. and blows my mind. Yeah. Um, Because we're the same age. (laughs) But, and so then, um, and so having John only 10 minutes away from me, though, like, Mm. is everything. Mm -hmm. Particularly because, you know, New York is crazy and moving here, I really had no sense of what exactly I was trying to get out of the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, But definitely found a community that could support my dreams and my ambitions and whose dreams and ambitions I can support. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a really important part of like how I can make it here, mm. having a community of queer, trans people of color who like have similar values to me, mm. who um, care about the arts, who care about the community, who care about education, who care about like community gathering, networking, like just like having people that look like you mm. in one room together and sharing stories mm. has been a big part and a big, important part of my time here.
0: And so, where were the spaces where you started to find that? In New York, or even beforehand?
1: Um, I guess I'll talk about beforehand and work my way to New York. Mm-hmm. So I went to Brookstone School, which mm-hmm. is a high school in Columbus, Georgia. And it's a private high school, and it's like predominantly white. It's like a really, 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 really fancy high school. I got a, me and my brother John both got full scholarships to go there. Mm-hmm. At the time, in high school, I didn't necessarily have the language for queer mm. or, like, pog, like, no <laughs> one was saying that. Yeah. Um, but I managed to find, like, all the <laughs> queer people of color mm. in the program, and we were friends, even when we all didn't even identify that way. Mm. But we saw something in each other that, I think, calmed us, particularly in an environment that was so oppressively white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was everything. So that was sort of a high school moment. And then moving from high school into college, Brown is amazing. And at Brown, you can totally find whatever kind of community that you're looking for as specific as it needs to get. At least that was my experience. And at Brown, a lot of my time was spent dealing with artists and particularly theater makers and also cutie pop. Mm-hmm. Also, I don't really think having a word for QTPOC yet, either. Mm. I don't think that word happened until, like, my sophomore or junior year of college is when people were like, (laughs) QTPOC. We were saying, like, TPOC in the upspace. So, like, theater people of color. (laughs) Not, like, trans people of color, but theater people of color. So, like, I, like, surrounded myself with the (laughs) TPOC of Brown University Mm. and moved to New York, and suddenly TPOP took in a whole new beautiful meaning. And... Now, um, I spent a lot of time working with an uh, arts collective that I helped found called Codify Art. Mm-hmm. We're a Brooklyn-based art collective of six QTPOC artists. Um, those members are me, Jared Key, mm-hmm. John Key, my brother, my roommate, Son Kit, Sharina Gordon, Leandro Zanetti, and Ivo Livia and having a space full of multidisciplinary artists who all truly do value different things in terms of art making and art processes but having a common mission to work together to support various mediums and various networks and various educational opportunities in our community has been really important. And so because of that like I have a, like a core group of six people that I love so much and that have been so powerful and meaningful to me in my time here. But also that group of people are dedicated to cultivating hundreds of artists, QTPOC artists, in New York City specifically, yes, but honestly throughout the world. And it's been kind of, it's been not even kind of amazing. It is amazing to be a part of an organization who can see individual efforts coalesce in order to push forward equality and a presence for voices that I think people like to say have been overlooked, historically overlooked. And I think that's very true. And I think these voices, QTPOC voices in general have been historically overlooked, but I think that is like a slippery slope for me because they've been there and people have been hearing them. And maybe we didn't have the language to talk about trans women the way that we do now, or like gender not conforming people the way that we do now, but I believe In history we have these voices so it's been amazing sort of over the last seven years or ten years even listening and reading about Mm -hmm. the kind of speculation of queer identifying people throughout history Mm -hmm. and their contributions and seeing how now as the in our present generation and for the future generation how our work is in line with their legacy Mm -hmm. even though at the time no one was talking about it that way but I but I totally acknowledge that like (laughs) A girlfriend was not in the closet being a trans woman surgeon saving lives, you know, 150 Mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. Like, where would our courage come from? Mm. You know? Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. And I'm,
0: like, particularly struck by the idea of, like, the kind of legacies. I mean, because we are an oral history project, like, this is very much kind of, like, what we're interested in. And so maybe are there any kind of particular um, legacies or... Um, or moments that you're kind of thinking about personally or in your art practice that like inform your identity, your work, your how you persevere.
1: These are all really great questions. So, hmm, I would like to talk about this this way, because a lot of my work is about capturing, my own family's personal histories, like mm. familial histories and oral histories, and transcribing them in a way that feels authentic to me but doesn't necessarily require like you to be able to read or you to be able to have access to a computer. Mm. Or um, So that's a lot of my work. So my grandmother actually mm. is a big inspiration to me, and I she is not queer as far as I know, yeah. or she wasn't queer as far as I know, but I definitely feel like, the courage of a woman who was married in like the I guess mid-thirties mm-hmm. at 13, mm-hmm. had 10 kids, didn't read, couldn't read, and somehow managed to be the matriarch of five generations of people mm-hmm. and passing along those values has been formative to me. Mm-hmm. I knew my grandmother very well and so she was a big inspiration, for example, for my hair painting project yeah. in that series. Because she said, growing up, your hair is your strength. Don't cut your hair. And so that's from the Bible um, Judges. It's the story of Samson and Delilah. And how, basically, we know that story. Delilah, ultimately, I'm going to say tricks, for lack of a better word. Samson and his hair gets cut off. He loses all his strength. And then he's like, God, I am like need my strength back so I can take these bitches out. <laughs> and then he takes out the whole temple. And so a lot of, and so my grandmother telling me, that story, or not even telling me the story, just always repeating sort of these phrases and, like, values that she got from these stories was very interesting to me. Because, it's like, how did she get these stories? Like, was she in church one day and a preacher said, your hair is your strength, don't cut your hair? Because she definitely didn't read it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, like, how do, or, like, did her mother tell her that? Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's been very interesting in that way. I think in terms of artists, though, like... sort of the interesting thing is that I walk around New York City a lot particularly like in Bushwick and and Brooklyn or even down the street I work at Sotheby's part time and people come up to me being like you remind me of Jean-Michel Basquiat (laughs) and I'm like I don't know how I feel about that Mm -hmm. yes like I have sort of like dreaded long hair and I like have maybe a quirky style and definitely queer but it's like and you're just talking about a black person that's <laughs> queer and famous that you know, you yeah, know, like, so yeah. I, and and not to say, <laughs> I mean, so that's like sort of what it like initially came to mind when you mm-hmm. asked me that question, mm-hmm. obviously like the legacy of Basquiat's work and the ability for sort of a new modern expressionism mm-hmm. with rise to like imagery and sort of street graffiti and sort of um colloquial pop cultural references is amazing particularly because we know that his life was so publicly queer yeah. and people still were like in love with him mm-hmm. i think speaks a lot to like progress that was made because of him and people before him and i definitely feel like we're still pushing that wall it, you know yeah yeah i guess that answers your question yeah yeah Let's let's see if I can think of anyone else. Like I don't know. I mean James Baldwin and his writing. I think that even as a child, I don't know when I first read one of James Baldwin's books, but I definitely know when I read it at Brown it was like I it was like I suddenly had the tools to even like dive deep into what he was actually dealing with Mm -hmm. because I think from like you know being a 13 year old like questioning kid in Alabama versus being someone who's like 20 a little bit more red like definitely more life experience under my belt Mm -hmm. and more kind of perspective Mm -hmm. my relationship to his writing like changed drastically and it was like so inspiring and so moving and and also like upsetting because like some of the books are like really tough you know and so this legacy of like pain love hardship endurance resilience um are things that continue to inspire me
0: Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) um okay now that's really interesting because I think the kind of like the fact that your grandmother like is such a source of strength like both is has so much to do with, I think, a lot of queer stories, but at the same time, it's, you know, you said, like, I don't think she's, like, quote-unquote queer, but the, that, like, kind of, like, connection itself seems to be, like, an important part of a kind of, like, queer history that deals with one's own kind of um, community and family and everything. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, and I feel like as people, regardless of identity, we all need someone Mm. who or we all need someone we all have someone who has been formative in the way that we see ourselves Mm -hmm. and in sort of shaping like my own resilience Mm -hmm. and watching my grandmother even though we never really talked about being gay or anything like that Mm -hmm. um except one time which I'll tell you that story in the day um but I think having her in my life and watching how she's just, like, overcome so much and continues to, like, mm. you know, be strong and really not give a fuck and, like, <laughs> just, like, tell people what they need to hear mm. and to be a backbone for, at this point, like, hundreds of people yeah. was inspiring. And and I'm always curious, like, for queer people or trans people of color in particular, that person a lot of times it's not someone in their family. yeah, yeah, And so it's sort of, so I feel blessed to have that example even though it had nothing to do about sexuality, mm-hmm. but I do have a relationship with my family. yeah. And so for people who don't, like I'm, I'm always curious about so how, mm-hmm. like where does self-worth come from? Mm-hmm. You know, like how do you learn those things? Mm-hmm. I think so many people, you know, it's so hard when you have images in life that are always telling you like you're blessed than or you, you know, we have we have 45 as a president right now who is literally changing policies that enforce ideas that as a QTPO person, I could be seen as less than. But fucking all of those people and keeping all of those people out of my mind and trying to just stay grounded in what I know and what I've been told about myself and what I've been told about my family and what I've been told about my place in this world has been important to me. But the one story that I do have, this so this happened with my grandmother about gay. I think the only time I've ever heard my grandma say the word gay. Mm. So I was probably 14, 15, and my grandmother was like watching this little boy who's probably seven or eight years old, who lived across the street in Phoenix City, Alabama. And so he came over, he was like sitting in my grandma's den. My grandma was sitting in her comfortable chair that she liked. And then he like turns at me, and he like lifts his Right hand, and he takes his left index finger and he points to the center of his right palm. And he was like, Do this gesture. And so I do the gesture back at him. And he was like, Oh, that means you're gay. And you know, like children, like bad yeah, yeah. children shit. And I was like, Okay. And then my grandma was like, What you talking about? He's not gay. He's not gay. Da, 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 da. And at the time, like, I think I had just, like, accepted my own queerness at that point not that i was running around telling every time dick and harry but it was like i finally like stopped crying about it and stopped like spinning all night long praying to god to like take this disease evil disease away from me or whatever i was saying and like i finally came to like terms with it and then like this little boy had this moment and my grandma said these things and i was just like this is just all too much, <laughs> honestly. And at the time, I was like, this, "This is too much." So I was like, "Okay, I need to go now." Yeah. And so that—that that was sort of the one story, I like, like the one thing that had anything to do with queerness that I can think of from my grandma.
0: And so I'm wondering then,
1: like you say, at
0: fourteen, you just kind of start to hit that point where you're um, coming to terms with that they're accepting your queerness, and so. Maybe we could talk a bit more about that kind of, like, trajectory and what that looked like for you.
1: Totally. Um, so, another funny story. So, so that was 14. I The first person I told I was gay was my best friend in high school, Jerome Franklin Pierce, <laughs> who's a lawyer now in California. Um, and that was, like, my sophomore year of high school. I told him before I told my twin brother, John. Oh, wow. Which is really funny. And then I think, like, the next day I told Jonathan, like, in the, like... We were at a gas station getting gas for my blue pick ninety five pickup truck, and I like turned to him like, "I'm gay." <laughs> and so then, when I went to college, I remember coming back home for like a break, like winter break or summer break or something, and my family like turning to John and being like, "John, like, how are the how are all the gar- girls in school? Like, tell us all about it." And John was actually dating someone on my hall, her name was Brett, and I knew John was going to date Brett. When I got to Brown, I was like, my brother's going to date you. (laughs) Um, And so John was like saying some bullshit, some bullshit. And then they like looked at me, Mm -hmm. and then they turned their head, and they continue eating. And so at that moment, it was like, yeah, like, I don't, there doesn't seem like there needs to be like a dramatic coming out. Mm -hmm. It seems like we're all on the same page about this. like, straight people don't come out, gay people don't have to come out. Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna make the choices I want to make and we will talk about them as we need to. Mm -hmm. So then fast forward to, I guess when I came to New York, by that point my parent, my mom had met like a boyfriend of mine that I had in the past and like had met John's to-be husband um and that was like interesting because my mom would definitely like, you know, parents know, but yeah. parents might not want to accept. Yeah. And so we definitely had a conversation and it was definitely like totally fine. It like wasn't traumatic. It was and it was difficult at first, like just um making sure that I was keeping my personal performance and my authentic performance consistent yeah. from when I hang out with my friends, from when I hang out with my family for when I hang out with people at my job and so I think that that was like the biggest most difficult thing for my mom to come to terms with like me not being this like sort of shy quiet kid um who was like afraid to say something in in case of getting caught instead of just being like no actually I'm just gonna be real and just like continue to do all continue to empower myself to say and do and live my best life um, and then fast forward to the day that I got into uh, into RISD for my MFA program in painting. So I got up, this was like, you know, it's July, so this was probably in, I found out very late because RISD was just running behind for painting. Maybe the end of February, I mean, end of April, maybe the beginning of May. Um, and so I like just got off the phone with RISD, like negotiated like more money <laughs> and was like, great. And then my dad calls and he's like, he was like, oh, I've heard these things about you guys and blah blah blah. And so that was like a moment where apparently like people in the community in Alabama like are like on like my social media and like seeing me you in know, a dress I'm sure or something and seeing and sending my dad pictures and being like, what's happening? And so us having a conversation with my dad. And like I felt like that was like the only time I ever felt like I was truly coming out. It was like, hi dad, yes. I am queer. This means that I do this and this and this. And I like this and this and this. And I imagine this and this and this. And, which was, like, great. And it it really was not, like, again, it wasn't traumatic. I think that the, the thing that I did take away from that moment was, like, my, or the thing that my dad did say was, like, you, I love you, do you, but I don't want to talk about it. And so there's sort of like, I'm going to be supportive, but like, I also want to be blind and ignorant. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like what I was doing anyway, because <laughs> it really didn't matter to me, you know, because yeah. I was paying, I'm paying my own bills. Like mm-hmm. I'm supporting myself. I'm over a thousand miles away. Like I'm grown. <laughs> if I get married, I'll let you know, you know, like yeah. that's basically how I felt about it. Um, And that's where I am. (laughs) And so I guess it's dealing with family. I think outside of family, Mm -hmm. it's always been like, if you ask, I would tell you, if you have eyes, I think you can see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Honestly. So that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Cool. But coming out, I mean, the thing that, you know, I feel like there's a lot of pressure for people to, like, to literally come out the closet. And I think for some people, that is amazing. And to, like, you know, make your Facebook status, I'm gay and I'm proud. And if you hate me, like, delete me, it's like important and powerful and amazing. But, like, that doesn't have to be the way that it happens. And I think that's okay, too. At least in my experience, like, I feel like I have a loving, supportive, beautiful community of people that require me to be my most authentic self. And if I, and, you know, and I can, and with that, I feel enough agency and I feel enough love and I feel enough worth and value to just live my life the way that I need to live it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, I guess that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, So then maybe we can. Talk about like alongside that kind of trajectory or maybe even before your investment
1: in art and theater. Totally. How that developed from yeah. early on. So as a kid, again, I had a twin brother. So we did everything. We like played sports. We like started with coach pitch and then and we and then we swam and, we, and I played tennis for a little while. And we definitely played basketball. Did not play football because <laughs> we were very small children. And my mom was like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. <laughs> They can just watch football, they can <laughs> And then, and sports were always fine, and it was really an amazing space for John and I to be competitive mm-hmm. against each other, because we're not really, like I don't think of myself as like, I'm in competition with my brother, except like when we're on a field, mm-hmm. which is really great. Mm-hmm. And then at that same time, after we started playing sports around second grade, we started playing piano, and piano and rec- recorder, like all those sort of basic instruments. And then that kind of, for me, moved to flute, um, and then flute moved to um, oboe and piccolo. And then all of these interests in sort of classical music transformed into theater and Shakespeare. And so I spent a lot of time at the, the Springer Opera House in Columbus, Georgia, which is like sort of a state theater of Georgia. Did a lot of theater there and acting there and classes there. And then basically went to Brown thinking I was going to be an opera singer, mm. and did that for a while. I was like, oh yeah, gay black tenor from the South, gonna sing, like, you know, La and Rodolfo and all these things, and I was sort of like, okay. <laughs> so, basically, sort of, after my first semester at Brown, I was like, don't want to do this, music theory is very hard. Mm. I've been doing music theory my whole life, but taking that class at Brown, which was like above, it wasn't like the intro class, it was like the next level of that, but I needed this for my requirement if I were gonna pursue music. Took the class, I had to do another semester of it, Mm -hmm. and then another year of music theory, and was like, no, I am good. (laughs) Don't care about this, and my life in music means music theory, I'm good. Mm -hmm. So then I transferred to theater and public policy. So I majored in theater, did a lot of acting like many theater people Realized that acting was fun, but, like, not what I cared about. So I moved into producing and directing. And so that sort of became, like, a really big staple in terms of my performance art life. Um, And then went to Brown, graduated Brown, moved to New York, put up plays, produced a lot of things, worked in the producing department at the public theater, and somehow started painting. I, like, needed to paint. Because it was... So this was about... This was right after um, Ferguson and Trayvon Martin getting killed there. And me realizing that theater required a lot of opinions and a lot of like collaboration, which is why it's beautiful and amazing. But I needed an artistic form that allowed me to meditate, that allowed me to be self-reflective. That, I, that was literally something I could do by myself. And if I needed to be up at 9 p.m. P- p- to 2.30 a.m., like crying and painting like let's just do that
0: yeah and so that's
1: literally what I did for for eight months Mm -hmm. it was like that was why I started painting and after I finished one of my first big oil paintings like after like you know several months of like figuring out like what I was doing like you know figuring out my process and continuing to cultivate that process I finished a big oil painting and then went to bed and then it was like my grandmother woke me up in the middle of the night saying, Jarrett, your hair is your strength, paint with your hair. And that is, so I woke up in the middle of the night being like, Grandma, <laughs> who passed away in 2007. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I guess, I don't know what this means, but I am guess I'm going to wake up and figure this out. So in the next day, like went to the store, got a piece of paper, got some tempera paint, straightened my hair with a hot comb like she used to do, mm-hmm. and put marks and paint with my hair on paper. And it really became about a transcribing gestures and, and values and sort of physicality that made me think of my grandma, that memorialized her life and the things that she taught our family. And so that's how that got started. So it was interesting because I was doing all, I was only doing performance stuff, introduced visual art, missed the performance stuff, I guess, reintroduced that to the painting process. And so now my process, so now my artistic. Life sort of looks like fine art, um so painting, sculpture, um installation, some video stuff, um and also performance, so hair painting stuff. I still will act in any play okay. if someone asks me. I'm not really an auditioner. Okay. Um, but I've been in lots of cool shows at lots of cool spaces throughout the city and music, because music okay. is my first love.
0: Yeah.
1: So I'm you know, playing piano. I'm oftentimes, in the hair painting process particularly, I am often calling together various mediums of my art practice and putting them together. So for this, for the hair painting process that looks like dance, that looks like singing, that looks like me composing a score, um, like producing it and, and logic, and having that be the base of, be the soundscape for the actual performance that I'm dancing and singing to, on top of this composition that I'm creating with my hair, this painting composition that I'm creating with my hair. And so that became like a very, this, the hair painting process is a very fruitful place for me as an artist who really enjoys working interdisciplinarily, but often trying, but often having a difficult time bringing those things together. Cause it's like, all right, how do I actually show, how do I actually have a work of art where I can sing in it and it's also a painting? And it also feels like a really clear, authentic, full expression of all of my various talents and skills. Like, sort of hard to do. And so this like the hair painting thing, thanks to my grandma, (laughs) became this really beautiful space. And so I'm excited now that I've been, I've done, I guess about 30 hair paintings over the last couple of years or three years. And I'm excited to see what formally and conceptually this space of interdisciplinary work does for me. And how I can continue to expand not only on that series, but on, like, how do I continue to bring, to cross-pollinate these mediums in order to make one piece of work? Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah. Totally. Um, and so in a kind of more specific way, then, how has a hair painting series changed from, like, the moment of its inception to now? Like, how Very good question. did you interact with it <laughs>
1: So the first time I did it, I um, just put on some random song. I put on, I put a spell on you, which was, you know, it, it was a cover by Alice Smith of Nina Simone's song. I like almost forgot Nina Simone's name for a second, <laughs> which I was going to be shook by. Um, anyway, and so it's at that moment, it was sort of like very impository, like very like fun and like, less um just like less structured yeah. that was the first one the, the first hair painting my third hair painting was the first one I did live and that sort of shook it all up because the first one I didn't sing in it it wasn't about music really it was really about this idea of like I'm gonna do this with my body what's it look like when that shows up you know yeah. on this canvas and then the third one was live so it was suddenly like all right this is like pushing the structure of this now it has a function of entertainment now I also feel like the environment is playing a much bigger role in how I feel about what I'm doing and so how do I deal with that so I that's when I started singing in that first live hair painting I was played the same song I put a spell on you and I was like I guess I have to sing to this and then I started singing to it and that is sort of the emotional world and capacity for this performance became clearest to me And so then from the third one till about the 10th one, I think the biggest shift was in scale. So these pieces started out probably, you know, I mean, they literally started out 18 by 24 and then 30 by 30 and then 30 by 40 to the 10th one was done on a wall in the gallery that was 14 feet by 15 feet. I was painting directly on this gallery this gallery wall. So I knew that I couldn't get the piece afterwards. So it was like, only you had to be there to see it. And you had to, you know, once you if you didn't see the show, you didn't see the painting. Yeah. Um, and that became really interesting. And like, then that was sort of the first time it also, the scale of the work was so large that people were like, wow, like I see your, I see the, the human body size gestures yeah. that are creating this composition. And so then that was like, oh, I was like, oh, that's really cute and interesting. <laughs> and so then Um, to, I want to say, like, maybe the 14th one, continuing to push ideas of this large gesture, this this large mark, the idea of singing in the actual performance, to being dissatisfied with playing someone else's music. So about the 10th one, actually the 10th one is the first time that I also wrote my own score. And so at the time, I recorded conversations with my grandmother's aunts and I mean, my grandmother's children, so my aunts and uncles, and I asked them to talk to me about my grandmother's body, the way that she used her body, like, gestures that they remember, like, what her values were, like, what happened when she, like, watched the baseball game, like, what happened when she was upset, what happened when she was happy? And I knew my grandmother well, but, like, my relationship to her is obviously very different from, like, her oldest daughter, you know? And so having these recordings of people describing not only her physicality, but her sort of her values and the way that she saw herself was super helpful. So I used their language to make I to make my first score. And so it was actually me literally dancing to their to their voices, kind of accompanied with me and my brother singing my grandmother's favorite like Christmas songs and gospel hymns and stuff like that. And that was groundbreaking for me because I'd never really done anything like that. It felt very much like a collage of sound. Um And then to the 15th one where it was sort of, actually, I wrote this music. Actually, this is feeling like instead of like using other people's voices, I'm going to keep it very streamlined. I'm going to have it be about my voice and about my understanding of her values and like the impact that those have on me. Mm -hmm. But the whole frame of it was like a prayer. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of Heavenly Mother got introduced. And so thinking about ancestors and thinking about their presence and guiding us throughout life. This song, which was a prayer, became that. And the 15th one, I also, because of sort of the introduction of this, definitely more spiritual um, ideas about what the purpose of this and function of this process was, I realized how important ritual was in this work. And so me really trying to define like, what is happening in this? Like I start this, I press play, there's silence. I look at the audience, I put my hair up, I like put my pins down. I turn around, I say something, I pick up my buckets, I look at the canvas, I walk toward the canvas, I dip my hair, you know, like really figuring out what this ritual is. And then, so that was the 15th one, moving toward the like 20th one, where I took the hair painting off of the wall, removed it from this sort of proscenium sort of audience spectator or spectator actor frame and made it feel like, the goal of it was that the that the performance was 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 in a more fluid space with the audience, so that suddenly the people participate, the people watching are actually participating. Yeah. They're bearing witness to an event, much like um, you know call and response and a ring shout circle in Congo Square in the New Orleans in the 1700s. Like really, kind of diving into. The structural and formal ways that black that the black community has told their stories, mm. has engaged each other, and 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 committing myself to to that process, yeah. which was like really an important moment for me because I was feeling like I was like this feels very like like too Western. Mm. Like, why am I like putting? Why am I doing this in front of people? Mm. You know, like what's the point of this? And so then I took it off the wall and I started building these triangle I what I like to call sails um, that are sort of suspended in the air so I like mount them on one side and then uh, like pull, cool, like really like pull the sail to like have it stretch across the floor and stretch above the floor and so I'm basically condensed in front of it, around it, paint in front of it, around it, like everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I did this thing where I basically had this room that was 500 square feet big. And I put these three large triangles in the space that started down. And throughout the course of the performance, I would like pull the sail, lock them into place, and then paint on this like a rock, this triangle that just rose from mm-hmm. the ground, essentially. And that was in a really important moment for me because the audience didn't know where to stand. <laughs> (laughs) you know which was really important for me yeah so they were like really like i would when i walk into the space that's when they knew that they needed to like not be in that space unless they wanted to be literally painting with me Mm. and then also like having their energy and their gaze and their vocal support in this space because suddenly at this performance that particular performance people could not control themselves like people needed to sing with me people needed to shout people needed to clap People needed to run around this space with me. And I was like, this is it. Now we're getting there. Like, this is definitely starting to feel like I'm engaging my community. They're being a part of this art making process and ritual. And like, together, yes, I'm calling for Heavenly Mother. But Heavenly Mother means, can mean whatever Heavenly Mother needs to mean for you today. At this very specific moment. And then fast forward to, when was the latest one that I did? Well, I guess I can fast forward to what I'm about to do. Yeah. So my the next hair painting that I'm doing is actually a commission for the Columbus Museum. So the museum of this from the city that I went to high school in, wow. which is kind of amazing. Yeah. And they are buying the hair painting, the video, and the soundscape to be a part of their permanent collection. Wow. So the hair painting made it into a museum permanent collection, Congrats. which is exciting. Yeah. And that is gonna be really interesting. <laughs> Because for this one, I'm sort of, I'm simplifying again. I'm sort of like, it is going to feel like, yes, there is this hair painting on a, there is this canvas on a wall and everyone's sort of going to be the proscenium kind of style of it formally. It's going to feel like that's the case, but I've definitely figured out like how to engage the people around me before I even start the proscenium. So basically I'm going to be in the Columbus Museum, I'm going to have my stuff in place, I'm going to be wearing my overalls that I make, thinking about labor. And I will start singing in the back of the crowd. Mm -hmm. And then that sort of becomes the catalyst and the call for the audience to walk toward this canvas with me Mm -hmm. and really feel like they're helping me put this thing up and making this thing happen, at least emotionally more than physically. Um, And so that's going to be the next one I do. And that should be cool because it would be the first time that a lot of people in my family will see that performance live. I've Mm -hmm. obviously sent them videos and things like that and, you know, books or whatever I've been making. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be nice for, like, most of my family to actually see me do this stuff for real. Yeah.
0: Because
1: that's cool. Like, my mom has obviously seen it. She's seen it a couple of times, um, even once in my apartment. But it's going to be nice to... Like, have all my aunts and cousins there Mm. witnessing this for the first time in life. Because I think it changes. Like, the video of it, you can't feel the energy. You can't feel... the urgency of me making this thing happen via video, obviously. And so I'm excited for them to be in that space Mm -hmm. and feel my grandmother, like, come into the space with us. Because I think that every time I do it and I'm, like, yelling or singing, or belting heavily, Mother, sometimes when I'm doing the performance, like I often go in with like, I'm gonna do like these 10 gestures, and I know what these things are gonna happen, and they all relate to like various cues, and da 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 da. But then sometimes I find myself like really just waiting. Mm -hmm. Really waiting for her to come to me. Really waiting for that response from my call. And then, and I think in, and 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 it happens every hair painting at various times. Sometimes at the very beginning, and then when it happens at the very beginning, people are like, "Oh, I love that." I was like, "I don't know what happened," <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so I'm just curious. But I'm just very curious to see like what happens and how it goes. I hope. That, and I mean, sure, I'm sure they're gonna love it. I'm not worried about people being like, "Oh, this is really you know weird and queer and whatever." I don't even care about that. Yeah. I mostly care about just like having them experience this and thus having a conversation about it afterward. Mm.
0: Yeah. 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 I'm really interested um, in the moment you described where you made the hair paintings into sales and you were in the... Um, I think you said like 5,000 square foot? Oh, 500 square foot. 500, okay. That um, yeah, was like... That seconds. would be... Oh, my God. I would be like yeah. running around. <laughs> yeah. This thing. Um, But yeah, I'm like wondering... If you can like describe that space and describe maybe, I'm wondering what you think maybe shifted, that kind of brought this call to like a very kind of um, embodied community. I would say.
1: Yeah, I think um, in particular for that particular performance, the environment that I set up helped a lot to start with because it was the relationship between performance space and audience space was intentionally blurred there was no actual marker that told you that you didn't that you shouldn't be there which for me which like was a really learning that which is a great learning moment for me because it's like actually does there need to be this divide like what does this divide do for me it, maybe it doesn't do anything for me and so because of that when i first started when I first started with sound, like I always do, and a gesture, people were—I was like at the end of this wall, and people were trying to do the proscenium thing, mm-hmm. you know, like they were like trying to stand in front of me, mm-hmm. and then I like was like, but this isn't where it's happening, you know, and so then it was like me walking through them. And then me going to my first triangle where there was like five people like, you know, like hanging out and sitting okay. and like watching this thing happen. And I was like, great. And I'm like singing. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, cool for my thing. And they're like, oh shit, we're right here. <laughs> and, like, and they like got up and then they like they didn't even realize that they didn't have to, you know, like they could be where they needed to be and feel what they needed to feel. Yeah. And so because of that, because of my like, always going in and out of okay. the audience space, I think that made a big difference. I think on top of that, um, the thing that I heard from people in the audience was that they literally had never seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think that the sort of expectations about how to behave or what's expected in terms of decorum in in the performance all sort of faded away. And so people, because they just really didn't know what was going on, so there was like, I just, I, I guess I'm excited right now, so I'm just gonna yell, you know. So you know, you know, I'm excited right now, and like this person keeps singing heavily mother to me, I have to sing it with him next time he opens his mouth, you know. It was just like, I think that people really <laughs> were slightly confused and also inspired, and yeah. like, and I and I don't know, I really don't know. I just think that like. Really, since that hair painting, now I feel like, I don't know why, but I feel like, and maybe it's because of something I'm doing, but I just feel like the audience or the people involved don't feel like they, I mean, the people involved or people watching feel like they have the permission to, like, turn up if they need to. You know, it's like praise and worship at church, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like the emotional journey that so many people describe to me in terms of watching this performance is so moving for them that, like, they can't control themselves, like, because, like, they're, they're, like, going through shit, like, they're upset, they're crying, they're excited, they're happy, they're thinking about their own family, they're thinking about their own obstacles and how they've overcome those things, they're thinking about, like, (laughs) the sort of craziness of the chaos of someone, like, making a mess literally in front of them, but being in control of that mess, being in control amongst all this chaos. And I think that that sort of, that that presence in me allows them to also feel like they can be present and, and, and be generous with themselves in this space. I think also because, you know, also ritual just does that, right? Yeah. Even if you don't know the ritual, I feel like, so, like, I can go to, like, you know, you can go to Catholic Church anywhere around the world and it's, like, Catholic Church. And you walk in and you know exactly what to do Mm -hmm. and it can be in, you know, French and it doesn't matter. But you Mm -hmm. know exactly what to say and it's fine. And I think think similarly, even though this is, like, totally not as ubiquitous as the Catholic Church, (laughs) 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 I think that people totally, like, they walk in they see like my sort of reverence for this space. Mm. They see that initial gesture and the specificity of it. And I think they get it. I think they just get it. Like, oh, okay, this, this guy is like, in the midst of doing something. Mm. I'm watching this thing. This thing is having an impact on me. I guess I'm now participating in this thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, Oh, I'm singing. Oh, I'm crying oh, I am, like, following him. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like that's sort of how it happens. It's not, yeah, I just think that's how it happens. Mm-hmm. It's been very interesting. I really don't know, and it, I mean, it's an interesting part of performance in general, particularly ritual performance. Why do people know what to do? Yeah. You know, why do people, like, what are the cues that give them the language or tools or gestures to be able to complete the response? Like, people can... To complete the call to the response i don't know Hmm. that's interesting it is interesting yeah and it's so based in sort of my own southern like spirituality and religiosity Mm -hmm. that the that the triggers sometimes feel the same or cues feel the same yeah like even maybe i might be saying completely different words but the cadence could be the same Mm. Or, like, the gesture, the physical hand gesture can be the same. Or, yeah, I, I don't know. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Okay. okay. so now I guess I'm wondering um, about the kind of work you've done with Codify and Bauhaus. Yes. Um, if you can give us the kind of origin stories or the ways in which that's developed. Totally.
1: So I'll start with Bauhaus. Um, So Bauhaus is a work-live space (laughs) in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, which basically started four years ago (laughs) when I had, like, I was in the midst of that eight months of first painting, like, a crazy person. (laughs) And my roommate and I wanted. I was like, I want to have a gallery show. I've never had one. Mm. And my roommate is an also an, is an artist, and they were like, Oh, me too. <laughs> Why don't we just like have one in our house, mm. and we can just like invite some friends over? It. And I was like, That's great. Mm. That's perfect. Let's just do that. Yeah. And that is literally how it started. So I like had like you know my first paintings I showed in my apartment, and hundred and fifty people came through. It was crazy. I did not know that I even had that many friends in New York City at the time. And I actually sold a painting. I sold a painting for $35. And so at that moment, (laughs) my first painting was $35. And at that moment, me and Kat realized the importance, or Kit realized the importance of having a space where 150 of your friends can gather to talk to you about your work in a really casual way. You learn things that you... You learn things about your work. You learn things about people's perspectives Mm -hmm. about your work. And you also learn what your community actually cares about Mm -hmm. in terms of art making, in terms of, I mean, really anything. And so we're like, okay, great. We have to do this again. So we actually, we have to do this every six months. And so it really started out as a way for us to always, to always have a place to show work and always have a reason to be making work. You know, it was like, all right. So, well, we have to have a Bauhaus show. I know you haven't painted in, like, six weeks. <laughs> but this show is planned. Let's crank out ten paintings. Because yeah. the whole function of Bauhaus also was the work could not be seen anywhere before. Oh, okay. Like, it could not have been in, like... I don't even care if it was, like, your cousin's house gallery show. <laughs> like, no. Then work had to be brand, 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 brand new. Okay. Actually new. Okay. Um, and so then we started pulling in... Other artists, artists from certified art, artists from our community, and also like engage them in the same thing. Like, you want to make something new for our, for our <laughs> show. Like, come make something new for our show. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and we did that every six months. And so this, so this Saturday, on the twenty eighth, is our last Bauhaus show in our Brooklyn space in our Brooklyn apartment. And until it's been about four or five years, so I think it's the seventh one. We didn't do two this year because we're moving, so we decided to just do one in the middle of the year. Yeah, um, and I'm excited. <laughs> this show is going. To, it's called the Retrospective, and basically the idea is that we will always be showing new work. So we, because we, that's like the only really real requirement. So we're gonna have our new work, but we're also going to celebrate sort of all the work that's that's happened in the space and all the various shows that we've had, and also just the own progress of our work. We're just gonna show some old work and show some new work and show some, yeah. So we'll see. It should feel like a really cool thing.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm excited about that. We've had like gallery shows and sometimes we do like film screenings. Um, but it's always like a really good time. Mm-hmm. And it's always a fun party at the end of it. Because the gallery is like seven to 10, yeah. and then the party sort of starts after that. Mm-hmm. And I think, and people look forward to them, you know? Yeah. People are, because like, like, you know, you're in a space. It's intended to be very casual. The work, though, is amazing. Like we, so even when we started pulling in other artists who were showing brand new work that they've never shown anywhere else, a lot of that work ended up shown internationally, like and in, or winning like five thousand dollar awards or like you know like really going off and doing amazing things. And I don't know if that has anything to do with, like, (laughs) the artists themselves or the room or the space (laughs) or whatever. We just have good taste or I don't know. (laughs) But we have a great record of, like, this work doing well and selling and being put in prestigious shows and winning awards. So it's – I don't know, but it's cool. Mm -hmm. And so that's Bauhaus. And Codify Art, like I was saying, started – I mean, really, we could talk about it starting with the T-POC like t- in the UpSpace at Brown, yeah. because Kadapar Art is made of Brown and RISD students okay. um, or alumni. And that's just sort of what it is right now. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, but yeah. that is what it is right now. Yeah. I'm excited for the first person that we have that doesn't go to Brown and RISD. <laughs> or maybe everyone will always be a Brown and RISD alumni. Who knows? I don't know which one is more interesting, or I, I but I just want to make sure it remains like accessible and relevant yeah. and functions you know, like it needs to, and so we started because our friend Liz Morgan was putting up a play. Um, she was a playwright and an actor, and she literally just needed a team. Like, you can't put a play up in you're by yourself. And so she got accepted to a festival. This was like 2014, mm-hmm. and we like gathered around her to help put it up. And we needed like a name, and we needed like a marketing team, and we needed like a producer, and we needed like all these things. And so it all got started really to support this black woman and putting up her work. And then we realized, like, wait, we love collaboration. We love working with each other. We love, like, supporting each other to help realize conceived dreams and pieces of work. We all are artists. We all are constantly making shit. Like, let's take a moment and, like, have a conversation. And we took that moment after, like, we probably put up three of Liz's plays. And then we had a moment where we all sat down and we talked about like what we cared about and we talked about what our values were and we talked about what we're doing now and what we want to be doing and like where our interests are and then that day is when Codify art got started and or officially got started and so since then we've had the lovely opportunities to put up I mean several gallery shows um, throughout New York City um, as well as do educational events so for example We've done workshops at the Whitney. We've, like, done tours at schools and, like, Yale and NISD and Horace Mann. And we also were part of Pioneer Works' School of the Apocalypse, where we had something called the Spiral Library, which is really a class that we led or facilitated that allowed people of color to talk about their feelings in a post-Trump fake news world yeah. versus trying to just always deal with, like, politics or deal with, like, next steps or deal with, like, how do we fight this? It's like, actually, can we just check in? Mm-hmm.
0: How are you doing?
1: Mm-hmm. Can you actually write something for me about how you are? Can you actually record something about how you are? Can you actually share? You know, use your words, use your body, use your imagination, use all your your voice to, to talk about your feelings. And so that was a really important part of what we did and what we've been doing. Um, on top of that, we also have been doing zine festivals. I think the zine as a form... It's obviously an agent and an object for revolution. It has always been that way historically. Mm-hmm. And I think having, as a QTPOC artist collective, yeah. zines has been a really important part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Because it's like really, really amazing. Easily disseminable. You can like sell them at, for cheap at yeah. things. And actually people can engage with artwork without spending like, you know, a thousand dollars on something that just hangs on a wall. Um, and so we do a lot of zines. So every member in Califir are always making zines. we we have a bookstore on our website. And so we're always like reaching out to other artists to kind of flesh out with that what books or zines that we have in that store. So that's another big part of what we do. Um, and then we also do networking. So that looks like the Bauhaus situation is a great example of that. But also like we really just like, hey, hey everyone, community, we're going to a bar this Friday. Mm-hmm. Come through. You wanna meet a QT Pog? film director, or you want to meet a, like, graphic designer who's a QTPOC artist, or you want to meet, you know, like, actually, like, having a space where people can see each other, and shake hands, and hug, and laugh, Mm -hmm. really important, because, like, how much a community can be, you know, supportive over this digital thing, which we all know, and we do it all the time via Instagram, social media, Facebook, all that stuff, but to put everyone in one room together and people can see you, breathe with you, touch you, you know? Yeah. It makes a big difference. And so people oftentimes leave these spaces with like five more projects, you know? <laughs> it's just like a really good space and a really chill, casual environment. So we do that as well. Um, and gallery shows, theater productions, open the night nights, um, trying to like, we're currently trying to, we're currently sort of shifting gears because me and my roommate, Sunkhead, are going to RISD in the fall. Yeah. Oh. One of our members is already at Yale getting his MFA in theater management, mm-hmm. so producing. Okay. Um, so now it's sort of like, half of us are in school. <laughs> and so we wanted to sort of shift gears away from all the sort of in-person events mm-hmm. to something that will have a longer, larger legacy and also require us to really cull together and build relationships with more artists of color, queer artists of color, across disciplines throughout our country. So we're working on a book. Ooh. So Katafara is going to do a book, and that's basically all I should say about it right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in the next couple years, it's going to be sort of what we hope to be really the place you would go to, to know who are QT park artists that have been working across, like like from film, to tv to fine art to dance to like i want to make it as as broad and specific as possible like i'm not interested in just having like look at all these artists like it's not like here's your like we're going to talk about 20 people that do film we're going to talk about 20 people that you know are in the process of curating shows like you know really have it be like a place where if you have very specific questions you can actually look these people up yeah. You can actually know how to find them. You can actually hear their story. You can actually see their work. You can actually take this book, slam it on the desk of the Whitney, and say, no more fucking excuses about not knowing who Pugie Falk artists are. Yeah, Like, this is gonna, our goal is that this will eliminate that issue for at least, like, this period of time. Because <laughs> it obviously will change and we'll continue to add to it. And there are artists every day. And there's millions yeah. of artists out there. Yeah. So it's not gonna be, like, you know, every artist, <laughs> but <laughs> it definitely is going to be our curated sort of list of people that we like, people that we love, people that we feel like are changing the landscape, people that are popular artists, because I think it's weird to have a book that's meant to talk about Kiti Park artists, and you're not talking about Janelle Monáe. Yeah. seems weird. Yeah. So, like, I want Janelle Monáe in this book, <laughs> and I want to have her give me an interview. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're, that's sort of where we're thinking. Okay. We want it to be, like, our specific Brooklyn community, and as big as it needs to be.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that transitions perfectly into another question I have, which is like just kind of the category and community of QTPOC has a kind of like identifier of a certain um, social landscape of people. Um, And I'm interested in, you said that like that um, acronym kind of happened for you, like sophomore year of college and like what were the conditions around it coming about?
1: Yeah, interesting. Um, I think as we transitioned from as a as a society, <laughs> as we transitioned out of the nineties into the early two thousands, I think that we our values were changing as a society. I think suddenly. We really were, I think people were like, I actually like want a place, a name, a, a title, um, recognition. Mm-hmm. And so then like, I think bi and gay and all those things started coming up. I mean, even though people have been using that language forever. Mm-hmm. But then I don't know. And then like queer happened at some point. I don't really know. I don't know. I just think that people finally were like, People were, like, woke enough and read enough and to, like, know what they wanted and no longer asking for it. It's like, no, we are a queer, trans, people of color. Our community is important, if not only to us, (laughs) like, it's important. And, like, let's call it something so that we can galvanize behind it. I think it's sort of, like, how a lot of this identity stuff got started. Yeah, Um, Like, point it out so we can galvanize around it so that... Hopefully with recognition the quality happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that is amazing It makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you first come into like personal contact with it? I have no idea. <laughs> um when was the first time? Like Pac, cutie Pac, definitely in college. Yeah. Like definitely in college, definitely not in Alabama at all. Mm-hmm. Not not in high school. Queer as like a way to talk about gender performance or even sexuality also definitely college, Mm -hmm. definitely college, because, you know, brown students are crazy (laughs) and they, like, really enjoy being as specific and rigorous as possible, Mm -hmm. and so I felt like that was a perfect place for me because I was, like, I thought, like, you know, I thought I was smart, but I definitely knew that I did not know anything, (laughs) 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 you know, and so it was amazing being in, like, taking that gender and sexuality class my freshman year Mm -hmm. and I haven't my mind blown, you know, about the sort of ways that people are even, ta- and historically have been talking about sexuality. I don't know why people started talking about QT pop. I really don't. And I, I can, I guess, and yeah, I guess it's college. I guess mm-hmm. at some point in college, mm-hmm. maybe it was like, you know, the like multicultural center at Brown, or maybe it was like, I really don't. I feel like the first time that I saw t I thought it was like, why is people misspelling Tupac? <laughs> you know, like, that's definitely the first thing that I thought. And I was like, I don't understand this. And then people were like, theater people of color. <laughs> I remember that specifically because I was, like, probably a freshman mm-hmm. in Joe's, which is, like, a eating like late-night eating place at Brown. Mm-hmm. And people were like, you know, Tupac. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I don't know about the key Tupac. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Mm-hmm. I feel like now... Mm, a lot of people know of it. Yeah, I still, like, when I first moved to New York, I remember working at the public theater and saying, like, uh, like Pac. And then people were, like, shook. And I was like, what is Pac? <laughs> and I was like, people of color. Mm-hmm. But that was in 2013. Okay. And then since then, it seems, like, very normalized, like, in terms of, like, an acronym that people yeah. understand. But you know, if I'm gonna like write, if I'm like writing a proposal for something or I'm like doing an application for something, I'm always gonna say like, queer slash trans slash people of color and then in parentheses I write pog Because I don't want to assume that people get it, yeah. but I also want to teach people that this is the way that we're talking about it yeah. for right now. Yeah. Definitely. And I imagine that it will change, like it changes every five years. Like I feel like we're, like the community is always calling itself something different. Mm. Um. Or at least, age it like various generations in a community are always changing the way that they see themselves so them and talk about themselves, which I think is amazing and important. Yeah. So I'm curious to see like what happens next, <laughs> and if everyone is sort of just like over it and they're just like, you know, I don't know what they're gonna say. I don't know what it's gonna look like. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited, and I, I am noticing a lot more tension than I was in the and the community in social media and wherever of people like trying to like not have color be a galvanizing fulcrum for a community? Because it's like, what does that mean? Like, Because everyone has, like, you know, pigments and melanin. And, like, great, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get that. And I'm, like, not trying to comfort those people because I think that, like, once, I think that, yes, if we all are equal, nothing matters, and we don't have to have any labels, right? Nothing matters if we all are literally equal and there's no oppression and there's no privilege and there's no all of these things we're not there yet. And until we're there I think that we have to acknowledge the people who have quote unquote more power and we have to acknowledge the communities that feel disenfranchised and we have to name those communities and we have to give those communities support and resources and then hopefully we'll be in a place that these communities will have enough power and privilege to go out and make their values ubiquitous and God and make the way that we see ourselves not the way that we see ourselves not be something that's like confusing or an outlier or an othered mm-hmm. perspective and so
0: it strikes me that codify um both kind of like produces constantly produces its own community but also comes from At least in the way you're describing it, it seems to be a community that existed before you had a name for the collective. Yes. And so what was your kind of first contact or how was that community built? Was it in school and you like all moved to New York
1: and were like, hey, or? It really, it was in school and then we all moved to New York. That's exactly what happened. And then it was, you know, us all arriving to the city and not necessarily knowing what we were here to do, mm-hmm. like, yes, we all like had to have a job, so we all have our jobs. But like having a job and knowing why you're in a place is not the same thing. Yeah, and I think we we're all trying to figure out why we're actually here, mm-hmm. and because of that, art making sort of rose to the top of the list and community building, mm-hmm. and then that was like sort of what ignited it all, I guess you know and like a real a true need for this community a true need for people in a community who like can organize artists to get together to produce things can organize um, institutional spaces to acknowledge people in this community and have them become become part of these institutions So like a, the way a lot of the way that we used to see ourselves and we still do but i think that the our goals are sort of shifting a little bit, but, like, we we used to talk about ourselves all the time as as an institution that went into spaces that were predominantly white and brought people of color and queer people of color into those spaces to, like, shake them up, to, like, make it look like reality, to, like, actually to display sort of these institutional ideas about what values should be in relationship to what values are for people who are in the community. Mm -hmm. So that was a big part of the way that we talked about ourselves. And we did that, and we are still doing that but i think now our emphasis on sort of democratizing institutional white institutional spaces seems like a given but also doesn't seem like the work anymore it doesn't seem like revolutionary enough it doesn't seem like impactful enough mm-hmm. because like at one point at some point all these like institutions are going to crash and crumble yeah so like we don't do we need to necessarily spend all of our time mm-hmm trying to uphold these institutions while dismantling them or can we just like go off and just do our own thing Yeah, and so we're sort of doing both we're sort of like going into these institutions dismantling them and making them aware of like their institutional issues giving them lists of artists that they should be in contact with and working with having moments where you have people of color and queer people of color talking about the work in their institution that's often white facing and having like changing that up but also being like, well, we can also like, yeah, we can go talk at the Whitney, but we also can just like put up this show and this wonderful gallery with artists that we love and know, bring in people from everywhere, including the people from the Whitney. Why don't you come to Brooklyn, Whitney? Why don't you come to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like, and move in that direction more too. And, and cultivate and build our own stuff while taking that place. Okay. And making this more inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Does that yeah. answer your question? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um,
0: okay, yeah, so I want to be respectful of your time. So just want to finish by asking um, what your future plans are for Codify for yourself. Now that you're going off to an MFA program, what are you looking forward to?
1: Yeah, so my goal and Codify's goal is to be like the institution in 20 years for the cultivation and celebration of Q-T-Pop artists in America or the world. My goal is that I want to be the artist director of that interdisciplinary space. Mm -hmm. And and so that's like totally, so Codify is not going anywhere, (laughs) like for me. Yeah. Um, I think that while at RISD, my goals are to like learn more artistic skills to be able to have more fluent conversations with artists across disciplines. Like, I can talk to a fine artist if they do textiles, even though I don't. But, like, what happens if I actually know what they're talking about? Yeah. Won't that conversation be better? Won't I be able to actually, like, like, talk conceptually and technically about the thing so that when we're putting up the show, like, as a curator or artist director, like, I can actually engage with them in the making of the work, in the process of the work. So that's part of my goals. The other part of the goals is to bring Codify up to do talks, to yeah. um, engage with RISD and Brown and get institutional support mm-hmm. from for all of the work that their alumni are doing, literally. Yeah. And like and 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 raise sort of um, just raise the awareness and raise the impact that we're having. Mm-hmm. In that in those two specific communities and i think outside of that it's also just like continuing to be a place where artists when they're confused or artists when they need help putting up a show or artists where they're like looking for resources continue to come to
0: yeah yeah well totally.
1: thank you so much thank you this <laughs> is so fun yeah. yeah i appreciate it
0: yeah and thank you for sharing your story
1: yeah, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>